It is December 8th, 2019. The countdown to 2020. It's a good sounding year. 2020 on the horizon. I'm going to make a bunch of resolutions. A bunch. December 8th, my sister's birthday. Happy birthday to her. December 8th, the official recording of episode 75. It better be special because the number 75 is special. Why? Because the Golden State Warriors won the championship in 1975 as they swept the Washington Bullets. Oh, we don't call them the Bullets anymore. No, 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 no. New, new, new. Those are the Wizards. Maybe the worst team name in professional sports. Maybe the worst logo. We are Wizards. What is a wizard? Honestly, define it. We've all heard the word. What's a wizard? If you found out that your team was going from the Bullets, which is just about as hardcore as it gets, to the Wizards, we wear long flowy robes, we're into potions and pointy hats, and we're scary to kids. Are Wizards scary to kids? I don't know. If you're a pinball wizard, that sounds cool, but any other kind of wizard, not so cool. But back to 1975, Rick Barry leads the Warriors over Wes Unseld's Bullets, and they grab a championship six years before I was born. So throughout my entire life, when the Warriors were terrible up until the last five years, that was the crown moment. That was the big achievement. Always chasing a championship. And I kind of liked it. I think I have a loser's mentality when it comes to sports because I kind of liked it, thinking my team one day will get there, but not exactly getting there. The myth of Sisyphus rolling the rock up the hill. And then it comes tumbling down, rolling the rock up the hill and then it comes tumbling down and then you get kd clay steph draymond and it becomes a little too easy and then i become a little disenchanted and detached and now they're in san francisco and terrible and holy shit what happened to the warriors so episode 75 it is raining oh yes the rain has come could have used this a month ago you like obvious statements like that we could have used this a month ago I mean, where was it? But now it's here and it comes for a few days. And over at my mom's house, the rain went right through the roof and created a leak. And the leak was in my old bedroom. My old bedroom, which was truly my hub of life from ages zero to 17. That was it. Never moved my entire life. Infant, toddler, adolescent, teen, until college never moved. Then from that moment, 1999, to right now, probably have moved about 25 times. But back to that old magical bedroom that transitioned from many, many different forms into what it is today. Basically just an area for books, an old twin mattress, and a desk. Well, when the leak first occurred, there was a chance that it was going to ruin all the nice wooden furniture in the room. So my mom said, hey, come clear the drawers out. Yeah. I spent about 18 years shoving things into drawers, acting like I was cleaning, acting like I was decluttering. But really, after the posters came down and after the trophies came down, it still had the residue of being my bedroom because that's where I put everything. And I'm talking about things I haven't looked at for many, many years. So yesterday I went over there trying to help declutter the room before it truly becomes a brand new room, not my ex-bedroom. But really, the final decluttering, take your hats, take your garbage pail kids, take your love letters, take your old photos, 
and either throw them away or bring them to your house. Everybody's had to deal with this. At some point, whatever bedroom you grew up in has been transformed into something else. Or maybe it doesn't even exist because your family moved and moved and moved again. But it is weird thinking that that house is the museum of my life. So when I went to clear out the drawers, I took about an hour and a half actually going through everything. And the first thought I had is, it's amazing how much we forget about our lives. People you were in love with, friends that you really liked at a time. Classes you took. There were notes in there from high school. I had college transcripts in there. I had homework from every single grade. Photos throughout my life. And it was weird. A weird feeling came over me. Trying to capture, wait, how did I feel back then? How did I feel back then? What kind of person was I back then? And then my daughter was in the other room playing with my mom. Some grandma, granddaughter time. And it sounded so gleeful. And then I got back to going down memory lane. Hardcore down the rabbit hole. Hardcore. And I had the mentality of discard it all, at least most of it. You know, did it provide joy for you at one point in your life? Did this letter, did this pillowcase, did this autograph from Tim Hardaway provide joy? So yeah, throwing these things away, old programs from old games, old photos, doing things you shouldn't be doing in these photos and wondering how they stayed in the drawer that long. I even have a school bus with a picture of myself in every single grade. That was in there. Okay, I didn't discard that one, but I started thinking about all my old teachers. You don't remember all your teachers, but I remember one, fourth grade Mrs. Zander, and I remember her for two reasons. Number one, her daughter had Down syndrome, and she would bring her to class to help us, fourth graders, with art projects, and we loved her. And she had kind of like a sassy attitude. I remember. I think her name was Cheryl. It's all coming back to me. And I came in the classroom one day, and she says, Hey, Josh. Don't you realize Halloween is over? Why are you still wearing a goblin's mask, which is a beautiful burn? That's a nice joke. And I I was like, so impressed. I was like, not bad, Cheryl. I mean, it hurts, but not bad. The old, it looks like you're still wearing a goblin's mask because you're so fucking ugly. If I have to interpret that joke for you. I also remember Mrs. Zander's uh, discipline. If you got in trouble, she made you write down all 50 counties in California. I remember this. You would stay in at recess and just write down all of the counties throughout the state of California. That's a good punishment. It's productive. Unlike a suspension, you suspend a kid, they just go home and they watch Judge Judy and Old Three's Company reruns come a knock on my door and you sit there and you do nothing. But Mrs. Zander with the counties loved it. And I vividly remember asking her for help with the counties. And she said, Mr. Rosenberg, you require the type of help I can't provide. Another good roast. It's like they were the roast masters, the Xander mother-daughter duo. You need the type of help I can't provide. Basically saying, you need a psychiatrist as a fourth grader. And she said it with a smile. You know, there's a way of being kind of mean with your humor, but with a smile. Like Don Rickles style. Or even early Dave Letterman. You know these type of comedians? Like they're saying mean things, but you're like, I still love you. Like Jeff Ross is the best example. Sarah Silverman. They say the raunchiest, most awful things. And you're like, God, I can't stop loving you. I can't stop loving you, Mrs. Zander. You need the type of help I can't provide you. And holy shit, Mrs. Zander was correct. Still crazy after all these years. Oh, I'm gonna get that note. Oh, nope. 
Oh, oh, come on, baby. Oh, shit. Oh, uh-uh. Oh, still crazy. After all, that's not my octave. Get it in my register. All right, enough. So I cleared it all out, threw it all away. I saved a few basketball photos, a couple of autographs, and some stickers to give my daughter. But that's it. I threw every letter away. Love letters. Love letters. Sixth grade girlfriends capturing your feelings in a letter. That's not happening anymore. No kid of this generation is going to go home 20 years later, look through their desk and see these drawers of letters, love letters. I read them all, and then I discarded them all. Cathartic. It's a good experience. If you have a parent who's kept a bunch of your stuff, I do recommend this activity of looking at it and then saying farewell. Who needs the clutter? It's just going to pile up dust. There was one roll of film, though. I already have a regret throwing this stuff away. There was one roll of film from a Warriors-Pistons game. I took all of the photos at a Warriors-Pistons game in the early 90s, and we had good seats, so there was a lot of Chris Mullen, Isaiah Thomas, just up-close photos, and I was thinking, eh, I don't need these anymore. Tossed them. So I'll never get those back. You go through so many forms of yourself in an old bedroom. You really do. Think back to your earliest bedroom. And I was coming up in the 80s. That makes me sound like a rapper. And I was coming up back in the 80s. You know, when the KRS-One sound was starting to really spread throughout my community. No, but I was growing up in the 80s, which meant parents kind of, at least I remember with my group of friends and I guess peers, parents kind of let you have that space to make it your own. I don't think parents are going to be doing that today. I think parents in the Pinterest world are going to continue like a color scheme into their kids' bedrooms, decorating it where things match. I think kids' bedrooms nowadays, and I could be totally guessing. I don't know what kids' bedrooms are looking like, but I bet they're nice. I bet the parents buy quality pottery barn furniture. They don't allow tacks or stickers on the wall. If I was to think about my old bedroom, my sister's old bedroom, the type of freedom we had in there to turn these caves, these seven-by-seven foot caves into our true passionate displays of identity. There's no way modern day parents are letting their kids do this. I had so many stickers on the wall, just ruining either wallpaper or paint. So many posters. And let me tell you my posters. I used to go to Regency, which was a movie theater and ask them when the poster is no longer needed. Could I have it? So I had so many movie posters, of course, La Bamba, of course, Major League, but also movies I never saw, like Mystic Pizza. I don't even know what that's about, but I had a movie poster of that. I wanted all these movie posters. I had Three Amigos. I had Big with Tom Hanks. Howard the Duck. You know I had Howard the Duck on my wall. I think Ghostbusters. Weird Science. Young Guns. I had a Young Guns poster. I had a Kirk Cameron poster for no reason. Mike Seaver on Growing Pains. And just endless memorabilia. Endless. I don't think I was a young hoarder. Although the early signs were there. The early signs were there. They told the therapist. Focus in on his hoarding. My buddy Brandon down the street. Honestly, he collected beer bottles. He had shelves of beer bottles. Colognes. He had beer lights that you would get at a liquor store. I don't even know how Brandon had these beer lights from a liquor store in his bedroom. Stone Temple Pilots poster. Just dirty, dusty areas. Never cleaned. Just collecting. We would just collect a bunch of shit. Throw it all over the room. Nothing matched. There was no flow. 
There was no, yeah, we're doing mahogany into taupes. We're doing an eggshell paint. No, the uglier, the better back then. And now I think if my daughter, what, in 13 years, wants to just destroy her room with all of her favorite posters and pictures, I don't know. I'll think like, yeah, that's not what we're going for. Do you let her? That's a good parenting question. Do you let their kid, do you let your kid truly just put up whatever the, why do I have to swear right there? Whatever they want. I was about to say whatever the fuck they want. And there's no reason right there to swear. If I don't want my students to swear in class, I need to be the change. I wish to see in the classroom. You got to be the change. I love the hypocritical staff members who tell the kids, don't do that and don't do that. And when the bell rings, we do that. All right, can we talk about meds for a moment? There's still a few private topics. There's still a lot of things that are so stigmatized that people don't discuss them. Certainly not on podcasts. Certainly not broadcasting across these mighty, mighty waves, stream waves. But it's true. I mean, I think you understand by now. As a public school teacher, there's a few topics I don't jump into. There's a few topics just as a human on planet Earth we don't talk about freely. People still have private issues. But meds? I do wonder if in the near future, we're not there yet, if people just freely talk about whatever meds they're on. And I bring this up because I'm reading Howard Stern's book, Howard Stern Comes Again. And it's a bunch of transcripts of his interviews. And one was with Conan O'Brien. And Conan O'Brien, to me, has always seemed so put together. You know, so happy, so quick-witted, so bright. Conan's one of the greatest late-night hosts ever. He's in the top three. Charismatic. You can just tell he's well-liked by all of his guests. I think he gets a lot out of his guests. And he's still on. I believe he's still on TBS, although I haven't seen it in a few years. But as I'm reading Howard Stern's interview with Conan, you know, Howard has all these producers who do their homework. And I'll just read you real quick, straight out of the book. Howard says, do you suffer from depression to Conan? I mean, are you medicated? Conan says, yes, I'm medicated. Howard goes, you are? Conan says, yes. Howard says, you go to a psychiatrist? And Conan says, yeah, I go to a psychiatrist and I'm somewhat medicated. Not crazy levels, but I used to think I needed to be incredibly unhappy to be funny. Then you get to a point where you think, and people tell you that's not true. You get to a point where you don't care if it's true or not. You just think, I'd rather be happy. And Howard says, it seems like that's the myth. You've got to be this miserable, depressed human being in order to be funny. When you went for the medication, you were so bad. In other words, you just said, fuck it, I don't care. I won't be funny. But I can't live my life being a depressed guy. I'm a father. And Conan says, yeah, I have two kids. I've got a wife. I just needed help. Also, I realized I'm wasting time. I'm being so negative sometimes in rehearsal, yada, yada, yada. And then Howard says, with the medication, are you happier now? And Conan says, for the most part, yes. It's like a lever. It gives you a little bit of a push. It doesn't change your personality, but enables you to keep going. I think that's what it does. Conan just freely talking about taking meds for depression. Never knew any of that. But I loved how he freely expressed it. You know how many people don't want to talk about that? I have friends that are on meds, whether it's depression or anxiety. And I'm just fascinated by it, but I still know not to ask a lot of questions because it is a fragile topic. It is a delicate topic because I think we're taught at a young age to battle through some things as in, you know, get some help, get some fitness, talk to somebody, meditate, eat well, get a job you enjoy, marry somebody you like, you know, all these things. You can give me a long list of how to be happy. Rarely on these lists are get medicated. Go to your doctor. 
and ask for something to take the edge off. That's always like the last ditch, right? The last resort. But I wonder in the next 10, 20, 30 years, if people feel just like the slightest itch of anxiety or depression, if they're just going to be able to obtain enough medication where they don't have to deal with it. Sure, it could be an actual chemical imbalance. Absolutely it can be. Or it could be a rough stretch of life, just the circumstances you're in. And also, I wonder if people are just going to freely discuss it. Like we talk sports and politics. Actually, politics is not freely discussed. But just like we talk about, hey, what did you see on Netflix last night? Hey, what are you taking? Oh, I'm taking benzodiazepine, Prozac. I started looking it up. Not for myself. But just to see exactly what this does. Isn't that amazing that scientists, doctors have created prescribed pills that actually alter your brain chemicals? It's amazing. I don't want to just glaze over that. The science behind meds allowing people to continue living and not feel the pressures or the weight of anxiety and depression. You know how many Conan O'Briens there are out there? And what I mean by that are people that you think are just doing great in every moment, but they're not. And they probably don't want to talk about medication use, but I guarantee just by Conan saying that on the air, on the most popular radio show of all time, Howard Stern, that a lot of people listening were like, oh, I can do this. I don't have to be embarrassed. I think 20 years ago, there was some embarrassment associated with taking meds and maybe there still is to a certain extent, but if it's helping you, what a gift that is. I'm not saying as a shortcut. I'm not saying to alleviate all the other avenues of enhancing your mental health, but there's probably a lot of people that don't take meds who need it because they'd be embarrassed to admit they take meds. And that's my point. I say we remove the stigma from so many things that we don't discuss publicly or even privately. There's so many things that we're probably embarrassed about that if we just discussed it with a few other people, they'd be like, oh yeah, me too. Oh yeah, yeah, me too. And aren't those the best moments where you find common ground with like-minded people and you realize, oh, we don't have to put up these facades. That's why social media is so toxic. It's the exact opposite of what I just said. Most of social media is the facade, the filtered world that you want to present to all of these people. None of this shit's real. Getting real with people, that's what really creates the fabric of close relationships. Isn't that the most beautiful thing you could have in life? Close relationships? That's truly it. If I was to whittle it down to one thing, my entire experience as a homo sapien on planet Earth, relationships, and I guess you could say experiences as well, but relationships. And the best relationships are the ones where you're just uncensored. Say anything, say everything. Hey, here's a mistake I made. Here's a weird thought I had. Here's something I did. Here's how I feel sometimes. And whoever is listening, if they're close to you, they're able to listen. Maybe they could even relate. Then it'll deepen your bond. That's why Howard's a great radio host. He's able to deepen his bond. He's an open book. He'll talk about himself, his guests talk about themselves. We all know those people. It's just easy to talk to some people. Aren't they the greatest? It's like an energy you put off. Some people just have good energy. And you're like, you know what? I kind of want to tell you some things. Here's what I'm going through. And what unites the human condition? A lot of things that are not discussed. There are things that I don't bring up on this podcast. You know, just things in the family, at the house, that I'm certain would be of the highest interest to any of the listeners who tune into this podcast. And I hope as I keep doing this podcast that some of the stigmas are removed and I can talk about it. I talk pretty freely. I mean, let me be honest. I do talk pretty freely. 
But there's also the idea of, well, if you're a public high school teacher, then your students could hear it. Your students' parents could hear it. And if your students' parents hear something where they go, oh, I don't, I don't like that. I don't want my kid to be taught by someone who talks freely about this or this or this or that or that or that. Then maybe it gets a little dangerous. It gets a little fragile. But who's judging, right? Aren't the judgy people still going through things in their own lives that they'd like to really discuss? The most embarrassing shit? You'd love to discuss it. You know you would. Think about how many people, I thought about this before, how many people are probably gay but go their entire lifetime and never tell anybody? They just go into the grave that way. Why? Because they're worried about how they would be perceived, how they'd be judged by others, family, friends, the general public. Wouldn't that be great if there was no stigma around that? And I think it's slowly going away, but there's so many people that remain in the closet. So many. And I get it. Society's not entirely nice. But if you whittle it down to what are you worried about? What are you worried about? Losing a friend, losing somebody in your family, not getting a job that you want to get all because you're about to reveal one of your truths that deep down is wearing away at you. That's no way to live. Be free. Express it. Anytime in my entire life I've come out and just revealed something private to a friend, it felt good. That's what therapy is. It's all founded upon that. And you know what laughter is? Laughter, you know, not quite like meds, but I get a feeling after a big laugh attack, you know, the big ones. I don't mean like small little giggles or chuckles, but like after a big laugh, I honestly feel lighter, happier. Like there's just some light shining through me. And it doesn't happen that often anymore. Like the big ass laugh attacks, maybe one or two a month where you just can't control yourself, just drooling. You know, your heart hurts. You start to cough. Those laughs. Well, when those subside, you know that feeling, that euphoric feeling? Something has happened. Something with your serotonin, your endorphins, those laughs. You try to chase it. Laughter as a drug. If I can make that analogy real quick, you try to chase it. Oh, I want the next big laugh. It totally explains comedians. Comedy clubs exist. It's the business of laughter. If I could... If money wasn't a factor, time wasn't a factor, distance wasn't a factor, I'd be at a comedy club at least once every single week of my life. And I still go to the websites. I see who's playing at Cobbs, who's playing at the Punchline. Even though 99.99% of the shows I'm not going to, I still like to see who's there and who's it attracting. The people that sit down, why are they there? Because they want to laugh. Yeah, that's the easy answer. But what do they really want? They want that endorphin release. They want to leave the comedy club like just floating. The best feeling ever. And the whole background of all these comics perhaps being miserable themselves, suicidal, many of them, depressed. But they want to work in the world of humor and laughter. They're drawn to it. Are they necessarily filled with humor themselves? No, but they're good joke writers. And they know what they're bringing to the public. I think that's cool. I mean, it's not every comic that came from something difficult, some emotional turmoil that launched him in that direction to say, I want to stand on stage with a microphone and make people laugh. But really, there's a large percentage of these comics that are exactly that, sad people. And when Conan said that, I was like, no shit, no shit. And he was worried about taking meds, which would actually bring him happiness. He was worried about that because it might have removed his humor. That's some deep psychology right there. He looked at his entire life maybe and said, I've been depressed, but I've been successful in comedy. If I'm no longer depressed, will I still be funny? I don't blame him for having that concern. 
And then he said, no, it's kind of just like it takes the edge off. It doesn't change your whole personality. I'm interested. I am just like the journalist in me likes to experience everything. I just, you know, embedded journalism, the old Hunter S. Thompson approach, become the story. I'd like to try a lot of different things just once. How does it feel? What would it be like to take an anti-anxiety medication for a month? I've never even attempted, but we all have anxiety. It's weird to think the cure is out there, but you know what? I'll just battle through this. I'll just bug my wife and annoy the people around me with my jittery ass personality, but I'm good. Nope, I'm good. That is why I'm a big believer in mindful meditation. It teaches you to roll with those rough times. Roll with them because they're temporary. It's the number one thing that has helped me in life, knowing that things are temporary. It's my dad's best advice. I remember once my buddy Rick was moving. Did I already tell this story? In San Diego, we had a good apartment. He says, I'm going back to the Bay Area. And then I was like, wait, I don't know anybody else to live with. I don't have enough money to live alone. So my situation was up in the air, but I called my dad and he goes, hey, don't worry, it's temporary. And just that word temporary resonated with me so deeply. What a mindful word, temporary, to look at whatever you're dealing with and going, yeah, this will pass. That's the strongest thing you could say to yourself, this will pass. But a lot of people want to rush that process. But when will it pass? Make it pass now. Expedite it. There were a lot of other things I was about to get to, actually. And I don't feel the need to anymore. I feel like I could save it for episode 76, episode 77. I'll just probably keep doing this forever. Why not, huh? It's worth it. You find a little time, you do it. And if you're listening, if you know me or if you don't know me, but you've always thought, maybe I'll do a podcast. I would love it. I'd love to listen to any and every one of my friends do this. I think it's fun. I don't think it's easy. I think it's a process where you get better and better and better to get into a groove. But I think most people that have ever done a podcast are inspired by listening to a podcast and going, yeah, I could do that. Or at least I should try. So do it. This is the inspirational portion of the podcast. Do it. Get a microphone. Get the program audacity. Record yourself talking about some things that you're passionate about. And upload it to iTunes or Apple or whatever. I'll even give you instructions. Get a hold of me on Twitter at jrosenberg957. Get a hold of me. I'll tell you exactly what to do if you ever want to start a podcast. And I'll listen. I like podcasts. The one I listened today was with the comedian Anthony Jeselnik being interviewed. And I hate him so much. He's so unfunny and mean and not mean in a warm way like Rickles and Jeff Ross. But just mean where you're like, I don't get it. Why are you famous? And he was just as bad in an interview. Meaning I thought it was a character he played on stage. So I gave him the benefit of the doubt. This guy, Anthony Jeselnik. If you've never heard of him, you don't have to hear about him. And he was just such a jerk throughout the interview. And he thought he was so cool condescending, just privileged, like the opposite of somebody you'd like to hang out with. So not all podcasts are fun, but I listen to Bobby Lee, Joe Rogan, Dave and Jeff, Theo Vaughn, Chris D'Elia, Brian Callen, Todd Berry. So much better than terrestrial radio. It is. You ever experienced something so great? whether you're alone or with somebody else that you really wish you could experience it with all of the people you love, whether it's a hike or a vacation somewhere. And it almost takes away from the moment because you're thinking I need, I don't just wish I could share this feeling or this experience with somebody close to me, but I need it. I know that sounds weird, but there have been times where I've done some things that are just so wonderfully fun. And I go, I want, you know, my good buddy, 
to do this, or I want my mom or my dad or my sister or my wife to be doing this exact same thing. I guess that is, in a sense, a projection of what I deem to be fun and awesome, but it's true. Experiences are meant to be shared. Sounds like I'm just like stumbling, trying to find a point. Like, what's he saying? Is he almost at the end? Is he trying to find the message in the fortune cookie? Isn't that the worst? You open the fortune cookie and it's like, this is just a bunch of bullshit. Every time I open a fortune cookie, I'm waiting for something profound. Isn't that weird? I don't even like fortune cookies. I said it. I like most foods. I do. I like most foods. Tough to think of anything I won't eat. I'll eat it all. But fortune cookies? Why are we still calling that a cookie? It's not a cookie. It's not a cookie. All right? And I'm not ending on that. But it's not a cookie. I don't know what it is. A plastic little orange snack. Is it orange? I don't know. But on a run two weeks ago, I was turning a corner on the mean streets of Terra Linda. I was on a run outside. It was cold. And I was turning a corner. And I was looking down at my phone. Shouldn't be doing that. But I was looking down at my phone maybe to change the song. And when I looked up, there was a deer with antlers. Do we call those bucks? I don't know. 12 feet away from me. And in that moment, I figured if this deer with antlers wants to kill me, then that's it. Because those antlers, when you get that close, you realize, oh, those are weapons. Oh, okay. Those are weapons. And then I hit the skids. And the deer did the same thing. Kind of like gave me one of those about to shift moves. And as I stopped, the deer ran the other way, sprinted. So there's your answer. Do deer attack? The ones with the antlers, do they attack? No, they're docile. They just look a little scary when you get that close. Am I developing a fear of deer? Yeah. Yeah. Do I already have a fear of skunks and raccoons? I do. Will I one day see a mountain lion in the street and approach it like it's a house pet? And be on the cover of the newspaper because I got into a fight and I didn't win, but I didn't die. But I lived to tell my story on one of these episodes. Probably my buddy Chris just told me that there was a mountain lion on his block. I said, how big? And he was like describing a bear sized mountain. Lion. I was like, what the fuck? They win. Don't they realize that? Don't the deer and the mountain lion or the deer and the buffalo and the mountain lion and the skunks and raccoons. Don't they realize if they all just team up and come at us, they win. I mean, sure. I guess we, the humans, have the weapons, but if we don't have the weapons, if they get us in the moments where we don't have the weapons, they win. They could take over. Did I just write a Black Mirror episode or a sci-fi movie? Wildlife wins. Okay, this is a script. Wildlife wins. It's, you know, it's a horror. It's everybody in a suburb. Take any little village. Picture any suburb right now. And then, like, you hear a story. Hey, did you hear about the Donaldson family? Yeah, a deer got in their house and bit their grandma. What? A deer got in the house and bit the grandma? That's kind of how the movie starts. And then just every scene is, you know, a family eating or just watching TV. And you as the viewer of Wildlife Wins, you as the viewer just sitting there waiting for a raccoon to walk out of the bathroom. Waiting for a skunk to jump in through a window and bite someone in the knee. Or spray someone right in the face. Why did I say bite before spray for my skunk example? And then, of course, it culminates into a mountain lion mauling to end the scene. Who should we cast in this? And it's not a comedy, okay? It's not a comedy at all. Who are you picturing? The protagonist. I'm thinking uh, someone in their early 40s who, like, organizes the neighborhood. of How we have to protect our house. We have to protect our property. And everyone has a story at these meetings. Who's the lead? Who are you picturing? 
Jason Bateman. There it is. So obvious, right? Jason Bateman. Jason Bateman. Jason fucking Bateman. All right, that's episode 75. 1975, the Warriors sweep the bullets and go all the way. I love you. This episode's in the books. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>